So welcome back to another episode of the Privileged Man podcast with Dr. Phil Hopley. Phil is a medical doctor, consultant psychiatrist, and is globally recognized as an expert in mental health and performance. To top that off, he's also walked the walk playing premiership rugby for WASPs. He currently holds advisory roles with a number of the UK's leading professional services firms and the McLaren Formula One race team. He's also worked with countless top-level sportsmen, clubs, politicians, and businessmen. Phil's 20 years as a medico-legal expert enables him to effectively support leaders coping with the intense media-exposed demands of high-profile events, including the Common Select Committee hearings, the US Senate Committee hearings, contentious employment tribunals, and civil court cases. It's fair to say that by the end of this podcast, I was feeling that much smarter for listening to and knowing I was in the presence of one of the world's most sought-after psychiatrists. So, Phil, thanks for joining us on the Privileged Man podcast. Pleasure to be here, Pete. Nice to see you. So can you take us on a little bit of a journey, short form, from where you came from and where you are today? Delighted to. So London are born and bred. Uh, born at St. Thomas's Hospital in central London, where many years later I became a medical student. So that was an interesting return to source. I uh, grew up in West London, uh, eldest of three boys, a very close, loving family, feel very privileged in that regard. Studied at uh, a Catholic boys' school in West London, then went on to study medicine, qualified as a doctor, specialised in psychiatry, mental health. And part of that journey was in parallel with being a top-level rugby player and a semi-professional at Wasps for my last two seasons. Uh, and I've been working as a consultant psychiatrist now for, gosh, well over 25 years. Just picking up on the background of being a rugby-playing boy at a Catholic school, what sort of pros and cons did you now, sort of looking back on that, what sort of pros and cons do you see in that? Huge pros. So I think that my journey through life has been really enabled and facilitated by being good at sport. It's been a door opener. It's made transitions moving from one place to another a lot easier because very quickly you have an identity. People recognize who you are. You have a common language that you can talk to people about. Your self-esteem is assisted by the fact that you're recognized as being good at something. And a community sort of almost builds automatically, and that applies to other sports I've played as well. So I like to play social golf. I used to play a lot of cricket. I was an athlete for a while. Um, and you get that in all of those different domains. So that's a definite plus. Growing up in a Catholic faith-based family was, for me, very kind of formative, still remains important in my life, gives me focus, gives me direction, gives me an amazing confidence when times are hard, and the time, times are hard for everybody. And I cling on to that strongly. The flip side of both of those things is that depending on the communities you end up in, you can be swept along with behaviors that you wouldn't necessarily think are wonderful uh, or, you know, um, upstanding. And equally with some of the elements around a, a strong connection to faith, you know, your thinking can sometimes be wrought down by that. And um, we talk in cognitive terms about various mind traps that people get into. And certainly for me growing up in that setting, where I was not only in a kind of family that was guided by faith and a school that was guided by faith, but also someone who achieved a lot and had lots of early responsibilities. So I was captain of the cricket team. I was head of the CCF. I was head boy. There's a funny side story about that one. When the headmaster made that announcement to me, I walked out. Uh, he was one of the priests at the time. And the school was effectively run by the second master, who was a lay, lay teacher. 
And he said to me, look, Hopley said, don't get any ideas above your station. He said, there wasn't a lot of competition in your year. <laughs> I thought that was very nicely sort of grounding for me. Um, but having had a lot of that responsibility, also my uncle, my late uncle was a parish priest in the community. So there was a lot of kind of identifiable connections. Um, it meant that one of my mind traps is the rule of should. One should behave in this way. One should do that. And of course, people with mind traps like that apply it to other people. He or she should behave in that way. So I'm now conscious, I guess, having worked in the field I'm working for so many years of both the ups and the downs associated with a, what I think was an amazing childhood and early development. Amazing. Yes. I often see it in other people talking about the shoulds and I wonder where those beliefs you know, got imprinted to, to come out with those statements. So within being at school, were you at school with your brothers? I was. So I'm the eldest of three. They were three and four years younger than me uh, academically. Um, so it meant we were never, at school anyway, never quite on the same path. But the amazing thing, and both of them are incredibly talented sportsmen as well, the time puberty hit for them, they very quickly caught up with me and we ended up playing sport together for a number of years in our 20s. And that was hilarious and, and fantastic as an experience. Awesome. And did you, you played a Wasps with Damien, your brother? I right? did, that's right. And your other brother? So Rupert, who was the best of the three of us, sadly had to, very topically had to give up because he had a couple of recurrent head injuries. So he had concussions three or four times over the course of a couple of seasons. And a very forward-thinking and knowledgeable neurologist really advised him that it would be better for him if he was um, committed to a career that relied on, you know, cognitive complex processes, etc., uh, to put it to one side. So reluctantly, he did uh, in his early 20s, um, despite the fact that he had the, the best kind of potential of the three of us. Who's the quickest? I still am. Still am. <laughs> <laughs> quickest swing in golf as well? No, that's Damien. And I keep telling him, you've got, you got to slow down to bring that under control. Well, thanks for explaining those early years. Just changing tack slightly into the sports world. I've got this quote by Johnny Wilkinson. I'm just going to read and then sort of use it as a backdrop for a, a further discussion. He said, I lived a huge amount of my career thinking I was going to achieve joy through suffering. But all I did was create a habit of suffering. I lived for those beautiful moments of being in the zone during the games and I told myself they were the result of the ridiculous suffering I went through and the sacrifices I made. So I told myself I had to suffer more because that was the way I was going to get back into the zone. And in 2003, he, he talks about my anxiety was at a, and for those who weren't either <laughs> watching at the time or weren't that into rugby, it was the time we England won the Rugby World Cup. So in 2003, he said, my anxiety was at a peak and then it all paid off. We won the World Cup. So I was like, bring on the joy. And it never came. So metaphorically, I think that many men can understand this mindset, but yet time and time again, we hear the goals are the an actual anticlimax. So in your professional opinion, why do so many men take on the badge of suffering and surviving as something to be proud of. I mean, there's so much in that, and it's a great quote to kind of unpick and explore. A lot of it comes from conditioning from childhood. So it comes from the influence of our parents, our sport coaches, very often, our peers. Certainly when I was growing up in London in the 1970s and 1980s, 
there was this spoken and unspoken belief that in order to be the best that you could be, you had to push yourself as, as hard as you can. There was no space for compassion. There was no space for kindness, for understanding, for kind of taking a, a, an individualized approach to training and performance, which now is very much the case. I work with a number of high profile uh, elite athletes who perform on the international Olympic stage. And seeing the way in which coaching approaches have evolved, not everywhere, but in, in many places, is very, very salutary, I think. So when you listen to what Johnny said there, you can see that that obsessionality, that black and white thinking, it's a form of a mind trap combined with that should, the rule of should, I, I should do things this way, I must do things this way, is what was driving him to what he thought would be successful and joyful. And of course, the, the fundamental thinking error there is that the goal you're working towards is going to give you joy. And it's really sad, isn't it? Because I've seen Johnny on stage at awards events and I see him now, and I still see someone who, to me, looks like they're they haven't reached that stage of acceptance at a level that gives them real joy. There's still a sort of a heaviness, a kind of a, a laboring, a burden that he seems to be carrying. And I think that applies to people, not just in sport, but broadly where they've gone about a journey in life, thinking that what they're working towards is what's going to give them happiness and fulfillment. Wealth and uh, material gain would be something that you should just immediately substitute in for this conversation. And I see this with so many of my seemingly successful clients who work in amazing jobs, who earn seven-figure salaries plus, who are super wealthy, have access to all the things that they could want in terms of material goods, homes, cars, holidays, etc. And yet happiness is well beyond their reach. And until they learn and appreciate that what they've been striving for is unfortunately taking them in the opposite direction, then nothing will change. Mm. Wow. Very poignant. And so what is the difference in terms of the suffering? People talk about suffering and, and as I said, it's sort of a badge of honor. If I ask many men, how are you, how are you doing? Or if I go down, you know, I haven't seen a guy who doesn't know what I'm doing or <laughs> hasn't seen me in a while. Many of them will go, oh, you know, I'm, I'm surviving, you know, the old ball and chains giving me shit. But, you know, other, other than that, you know, I'm doing all right. And I look at that and I think, and just like you said about Johnny, I find just like, it's so sad. There's this trending word I'd love you to explore a little bit is what is the difference between suffering and resilience? It's a great question. And the difference is very, very clear. So suffering is a state of mind where there is some degree of impact on us mentally or physically that is really unpleasant. It's taking us beyond our limit. Resilience is our bounce back ability. It's the degree to which we can deal with suffering. So the two are related in some ways. And the great thing about suffering is that handled the right way and managed effectively builds resilience. So as psychologists and psychiatrists working in this world, not just in sport, but in the business world and just helping people with their mental health, we look at three key components when we talk about resilience. The first is the degree to which under pressure we can maintain our focus where it's going to be most effective. The second is even when we're suffering in the way we are, to keep things in perspective. And the third thing is when that period of suffering is coming to an end or is over, to really work effectively on recovering. Don't be living in the past, making sure that your thoughts and your behaviors are enabling you to get over the experience that you've had. 
And we find, and there's very good evidence, if you look at the world of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy Act and other related forms of therapy in coaching modalities, that the impact of those approaches, helping people to think and behave differently, can significantly dial up their resilience and therefore significantly reduce the degree to which suffering impacts them long term. The reality of the modern era is that human beings are very well adapted to dealing with short-term pressure and stress. We have a fantastic biological system, which has really not changed in thousands of years, but it's designed to keep us safe. And unfortunately, in the modern era, the sorts of things we need to be kept safe from thousands of years ago, wild animals, dangers, etc., don't exist. So we've switched those threats, those dangers, for things that are just everyday experiences, work-related things, events in our relationships, worries about our finances. And so because of that, we are exposed to chronic or continuous stress in a way that we wouldn't have been thousands of years ago. We just talked about Johnny Wilkinson's journey and his uh, suffering. This is in stark contrast, I would say, to someone like Ben Stokes, who came out during his career rather than after his career saying that he was in a lot of pain mentally and that he needed some time to take off and to, to reevaluate his life. And then he came back and it's obviously had the most extraordinary results. And um, I've got a, a quote by him after, which I've got to say, having been at the Lord's test this summer against Australia, where England lost, I was slightly taken aback by this quote um, as a fan, but looking at it from a different angle, it feels to me as though Ben may have slightly cracked the code. So he says, after the test, we are not a results-driven team. Any game you play in sport, you always want to be the winner, but not putting the result at the top of everything that we think about actually really helps us play free-spirited cricket. So what I'm hearing there is a man who has seen the light <laughs> and sees that actually, and, and this is metaphorically for I think each one of us in life, is that to not always be looking at the goal and actually enjoying the journey. And there he says, play free-spirited cricket. I would, could also put in free-spirited life. 100%. I think it's a great quote. He's certainly not the first person to comment in this direction. And I can understand why as the, as the supporter, you might be slightly sort of skeptical about the approach he's taking. Look, we know from a neurobiological perspective that individuals, particularly those that are pursuing kind of high technical level sport, the more they can focus their mental activity and their parietal lobes, which is the part of the brain that deals with kind of autopilot activities, the stuff that you've got from years and years and years and years of experience and move away from your prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain that burns up a lot of energy and deals with actually thinking and strategically playing. The more you can do that, the more freely you'll play, the better you'll play in terms of being there in the moment. It's not easy to do, but it's a very, very important skill to develop because as soon as we start using that prefrontal cortex, we're burning up mental energy we don't need to use, but we're also adding a level of complexity. We're increasing the level of pressure on ourselves, self-imposed pressure, we call this. So training people through mindfulness practices and other distracting tactics to take themselves away from overthinking things 
is hugely beneficial, but not just in sport, not just for athletes, but for people in life in general. It's very hard to do, particularly for those perfectionists, particularly for those Johnny Wilkinsons who believe that they've been successful because they've done so much thinking and worked things out. And in fact, it's probably quite the reverse. Mm. So teaching them to not think is the key. Yeah, right. So if a Johnny Wilkinson or a high level executive came to you and said, look, this is the state that I am living in. I'm just in total thought. All I think about is the goals and I'm actually feeling like as I'm going to hit a wall, I've hit a wall. What are your action steps? So the most important part of any of these approaches is to gain high level trust. So I can't help anyone achieve anything without high level trust. And that all comes down to the interpersonal connection that you form to begin with. So what I've learned over the years is to get to that level of trust, the best thing I can do is just be myself, not be some highbrow intellect, not some amazing expert, not sort of pedal the great stuff I've done before, but just to be completely grounded, completely approachable, completely normal, and therefore trustworthy. Now, if we can get to that stage, that's the sort of building block. Then understanding exactly what those thinking processes are like becomes a lot easier because someone's going to be open and honest. You know, people that are high level competitors, when they walk in my door, they bring with them all the expectations of what their coaches think and what their family think and what their fans think and what other people who are close to them think. And we have to sort of strip all that away because I need to know, Pete, what is it that you actually think? I need to know that. And, and we get better at, as psychiatrists and mental health professionals at, at, at knowing whether people are giving us kind of honest approaches. So sometimes you have to be a little bit challenging and push back on them and say, you know, that's, that sounds all very well, but, you know, I'm just really interested to know what this feels like. And for, for men in elite sport in particular, who've grown up in a not particularly emotionally literate environment, because I think younger generations are, on the whole, maybe a little better than my generation was growing up. But we were not encouraged to talk about feelings. We weren't helped to understand what a different type of feeling is and where it comes from. Of course, that leads to all sorts of difficult behaviours when we try and self-medicate with alcohol and drugs for how we're feeling because we don't know what these feelings are and they're, they're unbearable. So you get the trust and then you have to really understand in detail what the current blocks are to someone's thinking and someone's behaviours. You really want to map out where that came from. Like we were discussing earlier, what is it about early life influences? Is it parenting at home? Is it something that happened at school? For a lot of athletes, there have been trauma events in their past, not necessarily abuse histories, but things that have really disrupted their emotional development. For a lot of athletes that get taken out of education because they're so talented at age 13, 14, I'm thinking particularly of football now, that opportunity to develop in a certain way has then been restricted and that has a, an impact on them as well. So really understanding what the building blocks of that person's difficulties are, particularly around the way that they think and they feel and they behave, is crucial. And then giving really, really, really simple, but applicable and easy to deliver solutions. So quite often advice I'll be giving to someone will be to say, okay, you're spending a lot of time thinking about this because it's a worry for you. We're going to sit down with a piece of paper and we're going to draw two lines down the piece of paper and we're going to have three columns. And the first column is going to be the things that are within my control. The middle column is things that are partly in my control. The third column is the things that are outside of my control. Go through this in some detail together. And it's quite often the case that people are spending a lot of time worrying about the column which is titled things outside my control. Now, you don't have to be a genius to see that that's wasting mental energy and you're not going to get anywhere. And most of us in Western civilizations have been 
trained to problem solve. When we do maths and sciences and when we do English and history, we're thinking things through to try and come up with solutions. If we're trying to apply that modality of thinking to something that doesn't have a solution, well, it's a waste of time, frankly, and it burns up a lot of energy. So identify that. Then identify the things that are within our control and the things in between. There's something you can do about it. Try and get someone to spend 80% of their thinking time on the first column. Then they can make progress. Then they feel like they're in control. Then that really develops their sense of positivity. And in the middle column, who are the people that can help us with these things that are partly in our control? Delegate to them, ask them, speak to them. Don't be carrying it yourself. So a very simple process like that carried out over the course of a few weeks will often release a lot of those kind of mental holds that anxiety has for people and enable them to really start to make some progress. Thank you. That was an awesome explanation. Speak, delegate, and talk is something you just said, and I'm just going to pick up on that. When these elite athletes come, let's talk in terms of ones who are in teams, do you generally find that they are talking to their teammates about this stuff, or is it locked up? Very hugely. And it comes back to the point I made before about me striving and my colleagues that do the similar work, striving to build that trust. So if you've got trusting relationships within a team environment, you'll definitely talk to people. And that's a really important element for coaches and for managers in trying to build what we call psychological safety in these environments. It's not easy to do. To give you a very concrete example of this, um, it must have been 2007, 2008, 2009, I forget exactly when it was, but um, my business Cognacity were instructed to run an education program around illicit drug use for the Premiership Rugby Clubs. And the reason for that was that there'd been a big scandal down at Bath Rugby Club. So what we did was we took this roadshow around the country looking at alcohol and drug misuse and we, and we ran seminars in the club. And it was really interesting because you'd go into each club and the culture within the clubs is different. It's exactly the same if you go into a bank, a law firm, a county firm. Culture comes from the top. So the level of engagement from the players was shaped by culture from the top. And two little examples here. So I won't name the club, but there was one club that had a number of players that were suspended or banned for cocaine misuse. In that club, listening to the, the younger players, what you could see was that they felt obliged to fall in line with this culture because some of these players who were involved in, in this undesirable behavior were very senior players. So they felt compelled because that's what the culture is like. At Saracens, we went into the session. And at the beginning of any session with a bunch of young men, there's, there's a bit of cynicism. People are, what are we doing here? And their manager at the time stood up after five minutes because he was in the session. He said, right, you effers. He said, this is going to be one of the most important things we do as a group in our careers playing. He said, I want you to pay absolute attention to what we're talking about. He was a South African, if my accent is not helping spot you. Spot on, spot on. And because that was the tone from the top, the impact was huge. And you look at the relative pathways of those two clubs over the last 15 years, and it's not surprising that one of them has been a table-topping, successful culture, and the other has not. More open, more vulnerable, more trusting, as you say. It's so interesting. It's the, um, obviously with what I do in the privileged man and the, in the community, I've actually created these rules where you don't have to say your surname if you don't want to. You, you're not going to be put on social media. 
nothing's going to be recorded and no photos of you are ever going to be used. I do this because I see on many other men's groups on social media, they are using, and I, I use that word very, very deliberately, using these snapshots of men at their most vulnerable on social media to make gain of either themselves as leaders, which I find fairly narcissistic, or they're trying to make a point that doesn't need a photo of a man at his most vulnerable. And I find, and as a result, we are attracting men who are, who, who value that confidentiality, that who value that safe space. And I think that that's something that as a, if you can call us <laughs> an industry, uh, uh, I'd say a frontiering industry in terms of men's work and men's groups, that's something that I really want to instill um, further and try and you know work with guys who are leaders in this space to make sure that people feel safe. Um, because otherwise, got very little chance of it becoming a normality in which is one of my missions is to make sure that men feel so they have a community wherever that may be that they feel safe and entrusting of the leaders who are taking it yeah i mean I, I salute you because that's exactly what you have to do if you can't create trust and psychological safety you'll create something you know people always join up to something they're interested in but it's true value will be watered down and you won't be able to facilitate the sorts of conversations that are life-changing for people. I remember when Duncan Bell, the professional rugby player at Bath in England, made his announcement many years ago now about the fact that he'd struggled with depression and he'd been treated for depression and the club doctor prescribed him some medication and it really turned his life around. And then he announced it to the club and then he announced it as part of one of the big um, sport events that was being broadcast live, I think on Radio 5 Live at the time. I spoke to Duncan afterwards and he said the thing that he was least prepared for was the response of other people. And he said at one level, it was absolutely wonderful and overwhelming to see so many people, particularly young men, thanking him for the fact that they could now identify with him, whereas before they'd always identified depression and mental illness with something that was weak or substandard or damaged or disabled in some way. And that changed their perception. But the other thing he commented on was that one or two people, and, and it really moved him, said that he'd saved their lives because they'd been so desperate and they hadn't known what to do and they weren't prepared to talk about it. They just didn't have the either the language or the confidence to be able to reach out or speak to someone else. But having listened to him, they were able to and they got the help they needed. It's amazing and it reminds me of this acronym, which is around LADS and L stands for loneliness. So really the not being alone because many men are not alone. They're surrounded by people, but they're lonely within the thought and the feeling. And that is the, the part which starts the insular behavior into anxiety, depression, and then suicide. So I always talk about loneliness being upstream from more serious mental health issues. And that's really my goal in life is to, to create these safe spaces to create a trusted environment where a lot of men don't need to go down that path. And so it's really interesting for me how we can create societal change, behavioral change. And that really only comes from behavior, as you talked about earlier. I look at 
politics and looking at sport and looking at corporate behavior and thinking and we're all, I'm looking for the leaders. And I, it's sort of, I know that it's being drip fed through, but there's a lot of talk about pressure, how the NHS needs to do more, the government needs to do more. But really, when I look at these headlines and look at the sort of blame game of what, you know, of, of where we are with men's mental health, I feel that actually we've actually got to take a bigger look. Each one of us has got to take a bigger, deeper breath and look within and actually think, well, how can I change my life? How can I actually support others? Because I don't think the government really are coming to save any of us and to actually change the way in which society is going to run. That's really going to come from thought leaders and leaders that people look up to. When I look at and I hear about leading sportsmen coming out with their stories, it's just so impactful. It has such a huge, huge benefit to society that perhaps they're not even aware of by doing it. I think that's absolutely right. I think that the utopian goal here is that you enable individuals to recognize that within their grasp, they can improve their mental health. They can optimize their resilience. There are things they can do, regardless of how crap their life is, how difficult their job is, what their circumstances have been, what traumas they've been through in the past. I mean, over the years, I've looked after some individuals who have had the most horrific trauma histories. I mean, we're talking about a point zero 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 one percent of the population in the world have ever experienced this, and yet they've rebuilt their lives. So that thing about keeping things in perspective is really crucial. So it's really important that individuals realize that within their control, no matter how tough their life is, there are steps they can take to improve their well-being. At the same time, we need those advocates, we need those leaders. And in some of the corporate organizations that Cognacity look after, we've seen phenomenal developments over the last 10 years where the leadership group has recognized the importance of well-being, particularly mental well-being, and have created environments where very senior people have shared their stories about the breakdowns they've had or the difficulties they've had supporting a partner or a child or a parent through severe mental health problems. And they've normalized those conversations. And what it does within those cultures is absolutely transformational. So if you can get it from bottom up and top down, you really can lead a revolution. Yeah. Amazingly put, beautifully put. Because I think that's what excites me is that when I talk to these guys, you know, our guys in our community is, you know, they're leaders of, you know, they're leaders of their own lives, they're leaders of their families, but they're also leaders of maybe companies, but divisions of companies too. And it's just like the effect of you doing the work has huge ripple effects. It's not just about you and your life. It's about the difference that you can make to so many other people's lives as well. So group interventions are really beneficial. They add something above and beyond what the one-to-one offers. The challenge, of course, is creating a group. Well, you know this because this is what you've been through, creating a group, finding that commonality, finding the right kind of support to provide for them. So psychological therapy groups are normally targeting people who might have a particular type of difficulty. So for example, people with anxiety disorders or people with depressive disorders or people with a bipolar illness. And so to do that is always challenging because you need a sufficient number of those coming at the right time who are, you know, to get it going. But there's absolutely no doubt that for a lot of people with mental disorders, but also just more kind of lower level subclinical psychological difficulties, 
that group interventions are incredibly powerful. If you look at the evidence around eating disorders, you know, day therapy and group therapy is really what's leading the way. If you look at addiction treatment, the 12-step model that's um, led by Alcoholics Anonymous and related groups, it's been phenomenally successful. And people that benefit from that will tell you that it's that cohesion and the connection you get within that community gives you a sense of support, belonging, and is an antidote to the loneliness that you described earlier. Talked about low-level psychological disorders. When I speak to men in general, there is something that is going, that is up with every man. I mean, it's almost like a human condition. No man has a perfect life. And this is what I talk to about and I'm talking about the groups to people who haven't necessarily been in therapy or haven't necessarily been in a group. It's just like, oh, you're, you know, and <laughs> I sort of almost banter it off as being a bit like woo-woo and being a bit out there. But what I'm saying is that actually it's normal for men. Like if you look, go back to the tribes, if you look historically about how men interacted hundreds of years ago, it was actually very normal for men to sit around a fire and actually talk out what was happening. Probably only in a, in a mile radius around them, but they had that conversation. They were able to express the tribal leaders led and allowed the men around that fire to have the time to actually express what was going on in their lives. And for me, there needs to be a place in society for for this to re-engage with men and for men to feel re-engaged with that goes just beyond the mental health discussion. It's actually like, how do we even avoid getting into the mental health discussion? How are we going to actually create a healthier society? So for me, the, one of the elements of creating the privileged man, the people who are feeling that something is just out of line, something is just not quite right. Those are the people who are also feeling massive, massive benefits of it because they're going through life thinking that that way of life is just completely normal, you know, because that's what my dad did or that's what my friends are doing. And then suddenly you get into a group of conscious men who are making deliberate choices about their lives to make them a happier, more fulfilling life. And things can change in a moment. Yeah, what you're facilitating there, so I agree with everything you just said, Pete, what you're facilitating there is a, a safe space for people to talk about their experiences. Now, what we know about mental health issues, even when they're subclinical, so they're not disorders, they're just difficulties, they're things that we're finding challenging in life. If our tendency is to be introspective and to contain it within ourselves, we're missing an opportunity. And we're also building the pressure that's within us because then we start to try and find the solutions we overthink and everything starts to gear up. Simply speaking in a trusted environment about what's going on is phenomenally beneficial. A number of years ago, I joined a, a very informal men's running group local to where we live down in southwest London. There's, there's about six or seven of us and usually three or four of us run each Saturday morning very early. And, you know, ostensibly it's about running and being fit. We're, we're not particularly good runners and not particularly fit. But the benefit is purely social discourse and support and talking about how our week has been and talking about interesting things in the news and just, you know, sharing difficulties we've got with our kids or talking about some of the success that we or our kids have had or whatever. And that's an ex a really good example of a very small 
group process that has been running now for, I think we're getting on for about 10 years, just started and it carried on because of the benefit that everybody feels. You're always going to have that kind of reluctance for men sitting down if they haven't had a couple of pints to, you know, make them feel a bit more relaxed. And of course, this should never be done with the influence of alcohol or drugs. It should be done completely natural in the moment. And whilst it might seem quite daunting to take people back to those kind of, you know, those older civilizations where that was done. And it was done in those days because of this power differential within the tribes and the groups. So if, if, a, if a young man was told to sit down by the fire, by the chief, that's what they had to do. We don't have that anymore. We have to find ways of creating that. And I think that's what you're doing very successfully by making it not mandatory, but attractive to come in and see what it's like. And of course, I'm sure your experience has been once people have been once or twice, they their defenses drop, they understand what's there, they're happy to be in that way, single, you know, first names only, anonymized, and it provides them a great support. So you make a great point, Phil, about the f- the most difficult thing is about actually turning up and saying yes to the first one, because I think once the man comes into a group, the men in there are not, they have, you know, two heads and... <laughs> aren't like you know dancing dancing around in ceremonies and all the rest of it it's just a you know bunch for for us and the privileged man it's a bunch of normal executive professional guys and that's in general and so once a man comes in they feel pretty much at home in fact that's why i do an interview before they join because i want to make sure for the integrity of the group that they're right for the group so i'll know instantly that they are or aren't right and you know that's part of the part of the trust process as well but getting in and as soon as that man shares and they hear another man share it just creates that instant level level of trust so yeah thank you for just highlighting that because it's yeah i see this quite often with people that come and see me in clinic who are reluctant to come and I always make a real point of congratulating them on doing the hardest part of this, which is just turning up. Some of them have been forced to go by other halves or by someone at work sometimes if it's related to a disciplinary, whatever. But that is the reality. Get yourself there. And most, if not all, of those preconceived worries, fear of the unknown, just dissipate very quickly. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, it's so true. <laughs> so true. And one final question I've got for you is a big one. Um, <laughs> but if you were. Uh, all powerful and you are sitting at the top of government at the moment, what would you do specifically to improve the mental well-being and the, of the UK? I would prescribe kindness. So everybody would have to be kind. And it sounds very kind of high level and a bit trite, but if you look at a lot of the stress that emanates in all different scenarios, it's generally because people under pressure are not leading or communicating effectively. They're reacting. And if you could teach them to press the pause button, consider their options, and then do something that would be more constructive for the longer term, that would be a really big change. And, and so by, by selling it as understanding that kindness drives performance would be the key. I talked earlier about how elite coaches now recognize the importance of compassion. I've worked with a couple of top-level track athletes in the last year where their performance has been hindered by the way in which their coaches have worked with them and we've gone through some changes to adapt that and if you can enable people to flourish to kind of 
not feel constrained, to not feel stressed all the time, if you're facilitating them to grow and develop, just as your group is doing, through kindness, then I think the potential is almost limitless. It's beautiful and a wonderful way to finish. Thank you, Phil. Absolute pleasure. So thank you for joining me, Pete Hunt, on the Privileged Man podcast. If you're interested in joining our exclusive community for men, please visit the website, theprivilegedman.com, for more details. Thank you.